going back to John 15 tonight. Um, you know, growth is a normal part of life. We all know that and we all expect growth to happen. Uh, so when it doesn't happen, generally then there's something wrong. There's an indicator for a baby. Uh, if a child isn't starting to grow and to develop naturally, right, well, let, let's go take it to the doctors. Let's go see the specialist. Let's go see what happens. And, you know, we love babies and yet we put up with a lot from them. You know, we put up a lot with babies. We love uh, generally what comes with some of it, and we put up with a lot of the other stuff. You know, we love how their eyes are so wide and so big. We love how their skin is so soft, and they make those, you know, for the most part, endearing little noises. We treasure it. And I think part of the reason we treasure it is because we know it's not going to last forever. We expect them to grow up, and we'll put up with the demanding cries and will put up with their selfish impulses and the tantrums and throwing their food all around them and the dummy on the floor and all the rest of it. And we'll put up with the messes because we know that that's what you do when you're at that stage and it'll not last forever because they'll grow out of it. Somebody once said, all a baby is is a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other I'll let you decide what end they're talking about, but that's, that's that. Now, that's all well and good. We don't expect them to stay that way. Parents, uh, you know, for, for those who are parents or those grandparents, maybe go back to whenever your own children were younger uh, and think about those first sounds the children made and how your heart melted whenever they grab out and they hold your wee finger or the first time they say, Dada, or the first time they say mama, or the first time they say blah, and you say, they said my name, or whatever it was that happened. Now, I guarantee you, though, if you walked into a house and there was a 25-year-old sitting there, dada, mama, and they're crawling around on all fours, you're kind of just looking at them to think, something's not right here. Something's kind of got mixed up in the whole kind of process here because it's not so cute anymore. It's kind of scary. It's kind of a wee bit freaky. And really, somebody needs to take a handle on that situation. John 15 is all about growth. And Jesus uses the metaphor as he walks from the upper room in the Last Supper and Judas has gone off to betray him as they walk down through Kidron Valley to Gethsemane where he'll be arrested and taken. And this extended metaphor as they walk and talk together is a, the better part of the first half of chapter 15. And it's a critical message. This part of Jesus' ministry, the last chance he has to kind of have a controlled conversation with his most trusted people, what's he going to talk about? What's he going to impart? And he talks to them about a farmer growing grapes. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, we're the branches, and the fruit will come out of that. And so he speaks about it and he describes that relationship of growth that we have as Christians. Now, I'm not going to go over the ground that we covered this morning. We talked about that pruning process. And I, I know it's not always easy to hear. And I know it's not always fun. But it's important that we understand that God in love will, will, will cut and snip away at the deadness in our lives to make room for more life, to make room for more growth. 
But tonight what I want to do is give you three examples of growth. A person who is growing in Christ will exhibit three things. And they are that we will be fruitful in life. That's maybe not very clear. We'll be fruitful in life, we'll be powerful in prayer, and we'll be joyful in spirit. First, though, a couple of observations generally about spiritual growth. Number one, spiritual growth should happen in the same way that a baby will naturally grow and develop. Spiritual growth should naturally happen over time. We should grow. Uh, Just as we can expect babies and children to develop through different stages, we should expect Christians to do the same. Now, it's never just this smooth upward curve. There's always the ups and downs. And with, just like children, some will develop some things a wee bit quicker and maybe are slower than others. You know, there's, there's some and they're very active and they're running and they're, they're doing things. Maybe their speech is a wee bit slower. But, but they all kind of get there in the end. But same spiritually. There'll be some uh, and they'll develop uh, uh, different at- attributes and different qualities. And some are more visible than others. And, but, but we're all growing we'll all get there in the end. 2 Peter 3, 18, Peter says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow. There's a story of a, of a bus of American people going around Ireland, you know, because how all Americans think that they're from Ireland. And they came to a little picturesque town down in Galway. And there was an old man just sitting on a fence watching the world go by. And one person from the tourist group yelled at the old man leaning on the post. He says, excuse me, were any great men born here? And the man just looks at him and says, no, just babies born around these parts. That's kind of really a profound truth. No one's born great. There's no instant heroes, right? We all begin as babies and then we grow into men and women and so growth should happen. The church should not just be a place of spiritual midwifery where you know we're all about getting people in and making them confess something or pray a prayer, put their hand up and then, okay, you are all Christians. That's our job done. No. Our, the job of the church is, is, is dealing with growth, dealing with making disciples. So yes, we, we start at that with, with spiritual newborn babies and we go right up through uh, from uh, pediatrics to geriatrics. Just all of it. We should cover it all. And so growth should happen no matter how long we've been saved. There's always room for more growth. Next thing, uh, spiritual growth has got nothing to do with your age. I know many people who are saved and are in, maybe retired, maybe in their 70s, maybe in their 80s. And yet I would have to say spiritually they're immature. And they say, well, no, I've been saved for a long time. And I says, oh, no, you should really be more mature than what you are. And at the same time, I, I know people and they're only saved maybe a year or saved a, a couple of years or, or, or maybe they're still in primary school and I'm, I'm looking at it and going, wow, there's a real profound maturity here. That's exciting. And it's, and it's wonderful. And praise God for that. It's staggering. Or perhaps a, a third observation about spiritual growth is that you can grow as much as you want to. Growth is natural, but how much you grow is really up to you. So I think that 
See, all the resources are given to us, and it's up to you if you want to make, take them or leave them. The control lies with you. Again, Second Peter, this time back in chapter 1, he, he, he writes, God has given us all things that pertain to life, that is, spiritual life, and godliness to the knowledge of him who called us. So in other words, we have all the things that we need. The question is, are we going to get up off our seats and do anything with them? Because then it goes on for Second Peter 1, uh, Therefore, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. So what he's saying is, whenever you're saved, when you have that saving faith, you should add to that virtue. Seek to live a godly life. Live a life that looks like you've been saved. And then as you kind of grow into that, discipline yourself, inform yourself, and explain, so that you can explain to others what that difference is. You've got that knowledge, you've got that understanding, and you're probing deeper and deeper into your own life, which will lead them to not feel only faith, to virtue, to knowledge, but then to self-control. It's a picture of growth and progression in the spiritual walk. So you've got this list of additives. And then he goes on, he says, and if these things are in you and abound, you will never be unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So those kind of three things kind of sort out for are just some general observations about spiritual growth. But let's go back to John 15 and read a little bit further. And you'll notice that there's a word that keeps coming up over and over again. It's the word fruit. Just listen to, to, to the emphasis that is put on, on the fruit. I am the tree vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And so if you're looking carefully, there's this progression, beginning at verse 2, where you have no fruit. And then uh, you, there is a branch and, uh, and it's cut off. But then there are those that do bear fruit and then they are pruned so that they can bear more fruit and eventually you get to a point where you can bear much fruit. Growth. Developing, maturing. So you've got fruit, more fruit, much fruit. Now if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here is Jesus using this analogy of fruit growing on a branch or on a grapevine as an analogy of Christian growth in the demonstration of, um, of everyday life and, and the pictures that they see around them. Now, there's a few obvious things that we can say uh, about fruit. So first of all, number one, if we're going to be fruitful in life, we have to recognize that fruit is noticeable. If you were walking by a grapevine and you didn't know it was a grapevine, how do you tell? Well, is there grapes on it? Yeah. Okay, that's a grapevine then. Is, is, what, what's, is there anything growing on it? No, it's just thorns. It's a thorn bush. 
there's apples in that one. Oh, that must be a pear tree. No, it's, of course it's an orange tree or it's an apple tree. Or you can tell by the fruit. And so you could be uh, an idiot when it comes to gardening like myself with no understanding of botany whatsoever. Even the plastic flowers in my house wither and die. But whenever we see the fruit, we know exactly what kind of tree it is. And so it is spiritually. You don't have to guess if a person is a believer or not. You'll be able to tell very clearly by the fruit. And it's none of this stuff where saying, oh, well, maybe way down deep inside there's something there. That's not how it's supposed to work with fruit. If you're bearing fruit, you don't have to dig way down deep into the grape tree or grape vine to find the grapes. It's there. It's obvious. It's understanding what you're seeing. And typically, if you just walk by and your grapes, you go, yeah, okay, grapes, fine. Yes, I understand that. I get it. That's a grape vine. It's easy to understand. It's easy to see. It's something that should be visible. Something has to be produced. Now, I'll understand me. Not everyone produces the same. Remember we were saying about children, uh, and they develop different ways at different stages, at different speeds. And the worst thing you can do to small children is compare them, right? Because they all get there in the end. They just get there in different ways and at different speeds. That's okay. Of course it is. And Jesus even said, look, there will be some who will bear 30-fold and others 60-fold and others 100-fold. The output isn't necessarily the most important thing. It's the fact that they will at some point be producing something. And that's what gives it away that they're a believer. Some kind of fruit which... Now, there's the question. What fruit are you bearing? What's the fruit that Jesus is talking about? Well, we know the answer to that. We referenced it this morning. Paul wrote Galatians 5, and we got the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and long-suffering. Very simple, but, you know, there's more to it than that. There's more than just those things, although it's a wonderful, wonderful summary. I think if you have that, you'll not go far wrong. But actually, in Romans, we get a deeper understanding of what some of that fruit might be. Number one, if you win people to Christ, that's fruit. That's a fruitful life. That's a fruitful ministry. If you're witnessing to others and people are getting saved, that's fruitful. Listen to Romans 1 verse 13. Paul says, I often plan to come to you, go to Rome, that I might have some fruit among you also. Just as, just as among other Gentiles. He wanted to get the room. He, there was a work going on. He says, I want to get in there. I want to get the room. I want to see people getting saved. I want to be a part of that. I want to bear fruit. Number two is holy living. A holy lifestyle is, is a witness of fruitfulness. Romans 6 verse 22 says, Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness. In the end, everlasting life. And so you've got winning people to God is fruitfulness. Living a holy life, a Christ-like life is, is fruitfulness. Number three, giving. Financially giving is fruitfulness. When Paul is taking a collection, Romans 15 now, all the Gentile churches are trying to get money together because there's famine in Jerusalem. This kind of mother hub of the church is struggling and it's being decimated by famine and sickness and all the things that come from famine. 
And so he's going around to churches and he's collecting money and he's writing to them. And Paul says, you're offering to the Christians in Jerusalem. And he says, this fruit of your love for them. And this fruit that I'm harvesting to bring to the saints in Jerusalem. Generosity with money. It's like, look, that's not as important as caring and looking after others. I want to do that. Fourth one is praise. The fruit of your own lips. Worship when you sing, when you praise God. That's what we were doing just before I got up to speak. Romans 13, verse 15 says, Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. There's a fruit of worship. Are, are you someone who, who enjoys worshiping God? Now, I understand that we there are many different ways to worship God. That That's not what is up for discussion here. The point is, but do you enjoy, does your heart want to express its thankfulness to God? And so these things are proof that there's growth taking place. Now, I'll add something that's important. A spiritual person should be known by their spiritual fruit more than their spiritual gifts. So I think, well, Jeff, what's the difference? There's a big difference there, and I need to say it, I need to explain it. A spiritual person will be known more by their fruit than by their gifts. You see, a spiritual gift is an ability that the Spirit of God gives us to perform in a way that just makes us fit in the church and gives us our, our unique place in each congregation. And so people will have the gift of teaching or encouragement or hospitality or giving. And, there's, and, and if you study through Scripture, you'll find these different gifts. But it doesn't prove that you're a mature Christian. And let me prove that, because Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and he writes in chapter 1, you Corinthians lack no spiritual gift. These guys at the time, they were speaking in tongues, they were speaking in these kind of spiritual languages, and they were uh, healing people, and they were doing all these amazing things. But then in chapter 2 of the exact same letter, he says, but listen, for all that stuff, I can't talk to you like spiritual people. You're still babies. You're carnal people babies in Christ. So, so they had the gifts, but he says, no, but you're still immature. There's still so much more growing to do. And so that's important. Here's a group of people that had giftings but lacked fruit. And Paul says that they are babies, that they're carnal, that they're unspiritual. Which is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Sort of thing, because we tend to put gifts on the hard thing. I says, oh, he, he can do this. Wow, he must be such a good Christian. Bible says, no, 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 no. It's by their fruit that you know them. It's by their fruit that you know them. You can't fake fruit. You can fake spiritual gifts, but you can't fake fruit. And so, uh, that's the, just the first Corinthians. You've got this problem, and 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 it's all because they don't have fruitfulness. So it's by fruits and not by gifts. John Stott put it beautifully, said, the Christian life should resemble a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree. Uh, because the godly decorations of a Christmas tree are only tied on, whereas fruit grows on a fruit tree. It's part of it. It's tied in. So fruit is noticeable. Second of all, fruit is natural. And we talked about this this morning. A fruit tree doesn't have to work hard pr to produce fruit. Uh, you're not going to walk past an apple tree and see it sweating struggling to try and produce fruit. 
That's not what happens. The branches just need to stay connected. Just stay connected to the tree trunk. Just stay connected to the roots. Just stay connected and the fruit will come. It's natural. It's a product of being connected. That's how it should be. Number three, fruit is nourishing. It's noticeable, it's natural, but fruit should be nourishing. Fruit trees don't eat the fruit that they produce. You don't go past an apple tree and it's eating its own apples. Or you don't go past and the grapevine's eating or drinking its own grape juice. It doesn't do that. The fruit is produced for the whole purpose of nourishing someone else or something else. If you are saved, if the life of God is flowing in you, if you are abiding in Christ and He is in you, then the life of God will flow from you. Now, this is where life gets exciting. In fact, if some of you have gotten bored in your Christian life, then this is where you need to pay attention because I would suggest to you that it's because you're very inward-focused. The real excitement in living the Christian life comes when you start looking outward and seeing what is produced through you can actually nourish other people. That what God is doing in you can impact other people. That's exciting. That's wonderful. That is where so much joy and hope and purpose can come from in the Christian life. Christianity was never supposed to be a solitary experience. One of the greatest joys of my life is the fact that there's a group of people here who not only can I can pour myself out for, but also that the same group of people will pour themselves out for me. That's wonderful. Proverbs 10, 27 says that the lips of the righteous will feed many. And so if you've got, if God is working in your life and you're growing and, and you're becoming more and more mature, then you have an opportunity to nourish other believers around you. Think about it. I mean, I, I'll not ask for a show of hands, but how many people would be saved here tonight if it wasn't for someone making an effort with them? Whether it was a Sunday school teacher or a BB leader or, 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 a, or a parent or a grandparent or a spouse or whoever it happened to be. They nourished. They fed. And because of them, because of them taking the time, because of them taking the effort, we're saved. When we seek to be a blessing, to nourish others, life becomes exciting. I love the description uh, that uh, Jacob had for his son Joseph back in Genesis. If you remember back in the autumn, we looked at this very briefly. Whenever Jacob was on his deathbed, he said of his son, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a vine by a spring whose branches climb over the wall. What he's saying is, my son is not just going to be someone who blesses this family but his branch is going to go over the wall. He's going to bless the neighbors. He's going to bless the people around him. There's going to be a knock-on effect of this life because of who he is. He's going to nourish and bless other people. His branches go over the wall. I love that. When our branches go over the wall, it's no longer a case of just watching what other people do or saying, well, we have small groups for that, or we've got campaigners for that, or we've got youth fellowship for that. I don't need to get involved. I don't need to go talk to people because there, there's just the, the mechanisms in the church. They'll sort it out. But instead, whenever we say, I want to get involved. I, I want my branches to go a wee bit further. I want to grow and, and influence a wee bit more. And this, 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 uh, 
not discipline, disciple other people, that's when life gets exciting. In John 7, Jesus stood at the Feast of Tabernacles and said to the people of Jerusalem, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. A lot of people might say, oh, Jeff, amen. Oh, praise God. Oh, yes, that's, that's what happened to me. I, I was thirsty. There was something missing in my life. And I went to him. Uh, and I can honestly say that, that Jesus satisfies. Praise God. But that's not the whole verse. That's only the first bit. Because what Jesus goes on to say is, um, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, not only will you be satisfied when you come to God, but others will be satisfied because you've come to God. That's exciting. It's noticeable, it's natural, it's nourishing. And the demonstration of true life inside us is that we're having a fruitful life. Now, let's move on. Second one. Not only will we be fruitful in life, but we'll be powerful in prayer. Uh, verse 7 will be powerful in prayer. Have you noticed that prayer is one of those things that we're not very good at talking about? Uh, we have a hard time with it because, yes, we, we, we know it. We, um, we don't really like it when people talk about prayer because it's always that one area that we would all like to do a little bit better in. Why is that? Why is it that we all come back to the same issue of struggling to keep praying? Why is it that when we've got so much room for prayer in our church that people don't take the opportunity to avail of it? That it's so much easier to get people into almost anything than get them to a prayer meeting? Why is it that we're weak in prayer? Because, well, truth be told, people all over the world pray, right? Muslims pray. Buddhists meditate. Uh, Christians do it. Uh, atheists might even do it if they're in trouble. People pray all the time all over the world for different reasons. Now, I can't comment on how sincere they are. For, I mean, for all I know, they could be like the little boy at bedtime who said, Lord, Lord, bless mommy and daddy and my brothers and sisters and my little puppy and God, please give me a bicycle! So, you know, I just shout that, you know, God's not deaf. He says, I, but granny's in the next room, and she is. Now, is that really a prayer to God? <laughs> or was it a prayer that granny would overhear him and get on the bicycle? And I know that we pray at church before each message and at the end of each message, and I, we pray, and you probably pray before most of your meals. So why is it, though, when it comes to really getting down into the nitty-gritty of prayer, why don't we do that much of it? And here's, here's a suggestion. Here's maybe, if I'm being really honest, here's maybe why my prayer life can go up and down sometimes as well. Could it be that we don't pray as much as we should because the last time we prayed it didn't work? The last time we prayed, we didn't get the answer that we were looking for. Nothing happened. And so then the next time that happens, we think, well, okay, I'll kind of you know, tick the box, but it's not really going to change anything. It's not really going to have any real difference. So we kind of just go, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, we'll just... I'm bringing that up because this promise in verse 7 is incredible. But I want you to notice that there are conditions to this promise. There are conditions. And if you meet those conditions, this promise will come true every time. 
Number one, in verse seven, Jesus says, if you abide in me. Stop there. If you abide in me. Those who have a permanent connection and union with Christ, that's abiding in Christ. So, so listen, God never obligates himself to answer a prayer of an unbeliever. Uh, he, he may do from time to time. That's his own desire. That's his own call. That's his prerogative. But he's not obligated to listen to the prayers of an unbeliever. So a prerequisite number one, do you abide in Christ? Are you saved? Are you trusting in him? Prerequisite number two, and I'm taking this now in the wider context in verse four, abide in me and I in you. The second prerequisite is Jesus abiding in you. In other words, do you involve him in your daily activities? Is it one of those things that you got saved long ago, but you don't really talk to him, you don't really let him in, you don't let scripture mold and shape your decision-making processes? Do you let him control your life? My day, Lord, my life is about your plan and your kingdom and your purpose. You go back a couple of chapters in John and Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, in other words, according to the person of Jesus, something that aligns with his purposes and his glory and his person. If you abide in him and if he abides in you, and the third prerequisite is in verse 7 again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. What are his words? Well, all the sayings that he said are his words. The things that came out of his mouth are his words. And I think we can broaden that to say, well, it's the word of God. It's scripture. Certainly scripture gives us directions for what we should pray for and how to pray the right things. For example, if I'm late for an appointment or if I'm late to, to get up to football match on, on Wednesday nights that I play in and I'm running a wee bit late and I'm going up the road at 90 miles an hour and I'm saying Lord help me not to get caught speeding is God going to answer that prayer? well he probably will answer but the answer is probably going to be no because it's totally out of line with scripture <laughs> you know you know how jesus taught us to pray father in heaven holy is your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's not about us going to god and saying okay god here's my will you get it done we're saying lord i want what you want here i want what you want i i desire the things that you desire i'm grieving for the things that grieve you and i'm longing for your will your plans your desires to happen here in this set of circumstances and so he says okay if his words are abiding in me and you're looking at what jesus is saying you will ask what you desire do you know why that is? Because whenever your heart is fixed on God like that, then the things that you desire will become the things that he desires. Your desire will line up with his wishes, with his will. You'll not be desiring things like, Lord, help me get away with the things that I'm doing, even though I know I'm technically in the wrong here, whether it's speeding or maybe bending their taxes a wee bit or maybe bending the truth a little bit to kind of get yourself out of a wee mess. It's a wee white lie. It's okay. 
Jesus says, when you ask the thing, ask what you desire, it will be done. Why? Because you're abiding in him. He's abiding in you. And his words are abiding. And they're bearing fruit. So proof number one, you'll be fruitful in life. Proof number two, you'll be powerful in prayer. And here is the third, and we close with this. You'll be joyful in spirit. Uh, Verse 11, but let's read from verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Isn't it wonderful that just after he said, okay, abide in my truth, abide, it says, no, but also abide in my love. This isn't just about do's and don'ts. This is about relationship. This is about how we, we, we feel about God and how he feels about us. Abide in his love for us. Remember, this is someone who, who's about to go and get executed because he loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave us his son. He says, abide in that love. And if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I remember chapters 13 and 14, and now 15, he's saying, all these things that I've spoken to you tonight, all these things from the upper room, all these things from, from just as, as Judas Iscariot has betrayed me, all these things that I have said, I'm saying to you so that your joy, my joy will be with you and that your joy can be full. Your joy can be to the max, turned right up to 10, right up to 11. It'll be for you. Go back to chapter 14, uh, verse 27. Part of the things that Jesus promised them was peace. Remember he says, my peace I will leave with you. My peace I, I give to you. My own personal peace, I'm passing that on to you. you have any idea how, how precious it is whenever things are falling apart? You can put your head in the pillow and have a night's sleep because there's a peace saying, God, I am trusting you. That, that's, that may not mean an awful lot if things are going fine. When it's tough, precious. Whenever everyone else is, is struggling to say, you know what? I've still got a joy. That's incredible. And so, so Jesus, as he heads off to get crucified, he's promising them his peace. He's promising them his joy. Just think about that. Jesus says, Look, I, I, I'm at peace with this. I, I have a joy that's set before me. Without exception, every single person that I have ever spoken to, whether they are Christians or not, whether they are atheist or Buddhist or whatever else or combination of thoughts or, or whatever they define themselves as, every person I have spoken to and talked to this about says, yes, I want to find peace. I want to have true joy. So put it all together. Let's put it all together. When we said this morning and and what we said tonight, if you're abiding in Christ and you're seeking to bear fruit and you're allowing him to abide in every part of your life and to prune us in every part of our life that we might become more fruitful, he produces a person who bears much fruit in life, who is powerful in prayer and is joyful in spirit. In other words, the very things that 
people that every person craves, Jesus says, I want you to have that peace. I want you to have that joy. These things that, that we talked about last week and Solomon tried for years and years and years to pursue. He says, no, 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 listen, you don't earn it. You don't spend a lifetime getting the right career. You don't get a lifetime of, of trying to get the right house and the, and the right car and the right holidays and the right income levels. He says, no, no, no. I just give it to you. I, I just give it to you. You don't have to run around chasing it. I'll just give it to you. I suppose the big question always is, are we prepared to go with God to get them? Because some people might say, well, I don't really know about this Christian stuff. I think there's a lot of other ways to find peace and there's a lot of other ways to find joy. Okay, well, we talked about that last Sunday night with Solomon. You go try them. Go try them. Tell me if the joy lasts. If there's one, if you can have a perfect night out, does that joy last for much longer than the next day or two? Or when the hangover kicks in, does it kind of just wear off a wee bit? And then all of a sudden the need for another night comes out. What about that peace? Whenever things are falling apart, do you get that full night's sleep? It comes from trusting in Him. Or do you lie awake because you're struggling to figure out what am I supposed to do? How do I fix this? How do I get everyone get together? How do I? It's about him. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. All these things people spend a lifetime pursuing. Jesus says, I'll just give them to you. I can give it to you tonight if you want. Jesus is going to the cross. He knows he is going to die in a few hours and he speaks about having joy. He speaks about having peace. What kind of joy could you have knowing that your life is about to end? Well, in Hebrews we read that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't like he went to the cross and was a big cheesy smile. It wasn't like the Monty Python vision is always look on the bright side of life. The joy wasn't in, in the suffering in the cross. But the joy was knowing that because of what he was doing that day, you and I and millions of others like us across this country, across the world, across history, would believe in him and be heaven-bound because of his act of sacrifice and because of that suffering. And I think that brought him so much joy. And he says, I can do this because it's worth it. You are worth it. And he promises you to share in that same joy. And that, you know, as I read Christian history, there are been many periods where Christianity has not been associated with very much joy. Some of it still isn't associated with very much joy. And there are times when Christians were taught to look very serious where music was kind of outlawed and pushed back. The clergy were supposed to just wear black. Everybody was kind of just dour and sort of sanctuary tones. And you didn't dare smile, and you really didn't dare to laugh anywhere near church. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I'd have entered the ministry if the clergyman I knew didn't look and act so much like undertakers. Robert Stevenson, not our Robert Stevenson, but Robert... Robert Lewis Stevenson 
uh, wrote in a journal and almost as if surprised said, I went to church today and I'm not depressed. Now, who wrote these rules about joy? Who, who said that you can't come and be holy and happy at the same time? It's certainly not our God. He says rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. David, a man after his own heart, danced before the Lord. And Jesus says, you can have my joy, and you can have that joy to the max, to the real fullest amount of a real authentic joy. Can we overturn the nonsense that says that joy has no place in the Christian life? And show people, show the world what it really means to be joyful, touched by God, full of life believers. Now, a name that you probably won't have heard of is Helmut Felicke. He's a German theologian. He's dead now, but he wrote this. Should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as lines of care and seriousness? Is it only earnestness that is to be baptized? Is laughter pagan? A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the toastmasters. Folks, how's your joyfulness? Now, I know this is maybe hard for some of you because maybe this year has been a tough one for you. Maybe this week has been a tough one for you. Maybe today's been tough. Or maybe you're bracing yourself for a tough week ahead. And I know I, I've been walking with some of you through some, some things, and so I'm conscious of the truthfulness of that. And, and I was thinking, personally, I didn't really grow up being really articulately taught this. You know, I thought the gospel was that I am a sinner, and I need Christ he died for my sins, and in order to get me to heaven, then I, I, I need to just ask for forgiveness. And I know most of you are thinking, yeah, that, that's the gospel. See, but here's the, here's the thing. Because I, the answer to the question was, why did Jesus die, or why should you become a Christian? Because my answer was, so that I get to go to heaven. What happened was I was grateful to Christ for redeeming me from hell. I was thankful because of what he has done. But to me, the real reward of the gospel wasn't knowing Jesus, but getting to heaven. Now, I don't know what I was, who I was expecting to meet whenever I got there, but my point was I just don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And it wasn't Christ. Christ wasn't the reward to me. In knowing him and abiding in him and him abiding in me, I was just glad not to be a sinner anymore. I was just glad that I was going to go to heaven, but I never realized how much I wasn't joyful in Christ. I was just simply thankful for Christ. This week we were thinking about the D-Day landings. And uh, maybe some of you were able to, to watch some of the uh, footage of some of those things that were happening or some of the films that were on. And some of the lifelike kind of scenes, they're, they're horrifying what happened all those years ago. And in the same way, I'm thankful for the soldiers. I'm thankful for their sacrifice. 
but it's not my delight. I'm not thinking, oh, that they're my reward. Freedom's my reward for their sacrifice. So I'm thankful for them, but I'm not delighting in them. But we read it this morning, Philippians 3, 8. For, his, for this sake, I have suffered loss. Uh, for his sake, I, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Not gain heaven, not gain a guilt-free conscience or get a new start or get everything all fixed in my life and all the ducks lined up in a row. No, I, I, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to put everything on the line because of him. He's the reward. He's what I want. He's what I desire. And I'll get rid of it all in order that I might gain him and be found in him. In him. Like, I'll say that our, our failures to maybe delight in him are, are covered by grace in the same way that our sin is covered by grace. But whenever I fail, whenever I deal with problems, whenever I deal with my own life and with work and when I, whatever I do and everything I do, I'm looking to the work of Christ and I'm rejoicing because I know that he has got me. Nothing is bigger than him. Nothing can love me or have more emotion towards me than he has. No one's going to hate me the way he loves me. No one's going to love me the way he loves me. No one's going to be passionate for me the way he is passionate for me. Nothing is bigger than him. Nothing is stronger than him. Nothing is going to derail his work in me. That's why I delight in him. His plans are still to prosper. He has not forgotten us. He's with us in the fire and the flood, faithful forever. He's sovereign over us. That's what we've been singing. And so even whenever I'm hurting, I can be joyful, even in the sorrow, even in the despair, because even though I'm hurting, I still trust Him. Our joy, with all its defects, is a real fruit of the Spirit. It's a real fruit of the Spirit, and thus a real confirmation that we belong to God. I mean, folks, I, I know you aren't dummies here, okay? And I, I'm certainly not a dummy either. We all know that things can steal our joy. Right? Whether it's brainless TV, social media, movies, whatever it is that you spend your time with. Friends that maybe aren't good influences. The things that they talk about, the way they talk about their girlfriends or talk about other people and the gossip. and the If you know where the poison ivy is, don't walk through it. You know where the poison ivy is? Don't walk through it. Replace that poison ivy with flowers that smell good and grapevines that hang with sweet grapes. Let, let me mention two things that will help you sustain your joy. And with that, we're done. Number one, hang out with godly people. And I'll not even just say Christians. I mean godly people, godly Christians, fruit-bearing Christians, mature Christians. And number two, generously give your time and effort to those to some worthy service, to some worthy service, because we all know that we pick up the enthusiasm of others. If you get yourself into a crowd where they're godly and into a crowd with people enthusiastic, that will bless you and it will nourish you and it will anchor you in joyfulness. And you know the truth of this is that if we really get a handle of, on the application of this truth, it will revolutionize this church. I, I truly believe that. 
abiding firmly in Christ, a people who are fruitful in life, powerful in prayer, joyful in spirit, it will revolutionize every, every individual who, who comes, who applies themselves to us, and in turn, uh, the, the branches will go over the walls and it will bless others, bless our church, bless the community around us. That's the life of a Christian. Yes, it's, it's hard when he prunes us, but this is why he prunes us. This is what he's built us to. I'm going to uh, ask the musicians to come up and we're going to sing in our song and then I'll come back up and we'll, we'll close in prayer. Thanks, guys.